with socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, 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 Sally. Welcome to episode 87 of You Don't Have to Yell. It is your resident bod boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here, and anyone who has listened to this podcast knows that it started out as a project designed to promote campaign finance reform until I realized it was America's winner-take-all system of elections combined with our two-party system that was responsible for much of the ills in American politics today. Well, what if... After almost two years of releasing a weekly podcast railing against the two-party duopoly, I learned that America's two major parties actually had a moderating effect on politics. Well, folks, even bod boys have flaws, because that is just what happened this week. This episode, I speak with Ray LaRaja, professor of politics at UMass Amherst and director of the UMass poll, who's done some interesting work on the effect of regulations designed to reform our campaign finance system and the effect that they've had on making political parties less competitive when it comes to campaign fundraising and spending, leading to a void that's been filled by wealthy donors and kooky ideologues. I hope you enjoy this lesson in the law of unintended consequences as much as I did. I will be back at the end with final thoughts. The reason I, I invited you here is, is I, I read some of your work on campaign finance, and you have a very counter, I wouldn't necessarily call it counterintuitive, but certainly a less than intuitive approach to reforming it that I really want everybody to understand and dig into. Um, but before we get into that, I think it makes sense to give a quick history of modern campaign finance law in America. Really, there wasn't any effort to restrict uh, campaign finance from private sources and elections until about 1900, 1904 with the Tillman Act. And even that was relatively loosely enforced. Watergate is when things really got serious. At that point, voters were very concerned about campaign finance. The Federal Elections Campaign Act was established that placed caps on spending and contributions. Provisions of that were struck down in the Supreme Court not too long after that, uh, giving parties unlimited ability to raise and spend money, which then turned into soft money. McCain-Feingold was passed in 2002 to restrict the soft money, which was then struck down in court uh, in Citizens United and uh, a couple of other smaller rulings. And now we have the Wild West we have today where Parties have their caps in terms of contributions, and it's a total free-for-all for single-issue groups or for the ultra-wealthy to fund their own PACs. How'd I do, Ray? I think you got it. All right. There we- <laughs> I was I mean, trying to figure- that for a long time to, uh, I mean, going back to the Civil War, people talked about it. Yeah. But the big, the big thing was 1974 when- uh, they really try to tighten things up and provide an enforcement mechanism because, as you said, there wasn't any enforcement mechanism. But as far back as the Civil War, they were trying to prevent people from giving money to the parties. Yeah. So 
um, with not much effectiveness, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's funny too because it seems like the first law that really had teeth was FICA, was the Federal Elections Campaign Act in in seventy four, and since then it's been a constant tug of war um, between the desire to put some cap or some some restrictions on who can contribute and how much and on the on freedom of speech which is kind of where these issues always end up getting uh getting gutted in the courts um now from your work it and and you can state it better than i can but it seems to me like like what you've seen is that our current campaign finance system where parties are handicapped in terms of fundraising has created this power victim or power vacuum i should say that's been filled by the ultra wealthy and by ideological groups. Am I am I right there? Yeah, yeah, that's that's you've got it right. The effort to restrict money has had this unintended effect of hurting what I consider to be a very important institution in our politics. Mm. Uh, so that's exactly right. Yeah, and so what's what's been the result of again these private organizations and the ultra wealthy having? that outsized influence on uh, finance in, uh, in campaigns. Yeah. Well, as the saying goes, uh, wealthy people are not like you and me. And uh, they have different set of agendas and, and policies and, and many interest groups that represent them. And so they've, um, they've become in many ways like what parties used to be. They are now the gatekeepers of mm-hmm. politics. When I say that, I mean they decide who's likely to run for office because they encourage people to run, they can fund them. They set the political agenda. And um, research shows, including my own, that uh, donors tend to be much more extreme than the average American. Mm -hmm. And they have a different set of agenda items that they care about than the average American. And so I'm concerned that the system has become extremely unrepresentative, not just in the sense of, you know, corrupt influence that is focused on in uh, politics, but just the sense of, Who's deciding who runs for office and wins? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's been a big concern. Yeah. And so in, ter- in your research, do you have any examples you can cite or any, any data that the folks listening and the folks watching can, can get their head around or, or use to get their head around the, the, the impact? Yeah. Well, so sometimes it works. Well, one, one example is most recently uh, this, uh, member of Congress, new member, youngest member of Congress, Cawthorn Madison, I think his name is. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was running in a primary in North Carolina, has no experience. Uh, no one knows much about him, but he was bankrolled by a group called the Club for Growth. Uh, many uh, multi-multi-millionaires fund that organization. And they look for what they would think of as libertarian economic candidates who just want to no restrictions on, on government, you know, getting rid of government regulations. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, he beat someone who was a more of an establishment figure that people in the party tended to prefer. Yeah. And the result is we have someone in Congress who has no experience and he's got um, a background that he's been accused of uh, sexual harassment. And um, he's not really the type of congressman uh, we, the founders envisioned. Yeah. Uh, I'll put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I, I I picked up from from reading your stuff is it seems like the parties on the whole provide a filter that keeps people like that out and tend to really nominate candidates that have a wider appeal than let's say those single issue groups might. Did I am I correct there? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So 
there's been a lot of recent research uh, about this, not just the United States, but elsewhere, that parties, again, I'm going to use the word gatekeeper, and it's essential for democracy to have some filter to prevent inexperienced people and demagogues from running mm -hmm. for office. And so parties, in some sense, are the vital cog that makes democracy work and continue to function. And we've had a weakening of that uh, around the world in advanced democracies, including in our own country, I would argue. Mm -hmm. And it's not all because of the money, but a big part of it is about the money. Who gets to run for office? And so the parties have been pulled away from that role by uh, many sets of reforms, both campaign finance and other reforms such as, I, I would argue, party primaries weaken them because now anybody can run for the nomination. Um, so that's weakened their role. And campaign finance has made it such that they can get support directly from these other groups that have different sets of agendas or make emotional appeals to a subset of Americans who are very active. And that's what's going on right now. And it's it's very worrisome that yeah. we don't have a situation like we can we can vet these people in a better way. Yeah. And so maybe to, to, to die or to double click on that one there, like, you know, what are some of the ways that parties, I guess, used to filter candidates versus the, the way it all happens now? So, well, if you go back, um, you know, when parties were thriving in the 19th century, no, a lot of it was about, um, they didn't pick people based on their knowledge of policy they picked people who were loyal to the party, who were going to go out there, run a good campaign, be party loyalists, and then serve in Congress. Or sometimes they would say, you know, it's your turn to run in the state legislature. Party bosses had a lot of say in where these people ran. And so they felt obligated to kind of listen. And, you know, people didn't like that, but I can point out some good reasons for that was good. And then as society became more educated, um, you didn't need the parties as much because you can uh, appeal to, and, and technology, you could appeal directly to voters through radio, through television. So money became more important than having party workers knock on doors. Now we're seeing more of the, the going back to the old grassroots stuff, but money became really important and the technology enables candidates to appeal directly on their own using these mass marketing techniques. And so that loosened up the party role and they've never fully recovered from that, except for raising a lot of money. But even there, they're behind other groups. Yeah, you know, I've never heard it framed that way. And the the thing I was thinking as you were talking is it seems like the party's number one value was the ability to deliver word of mouth in a world where mass communication was was less sophisticated. And one of the things I've seen in some of the past episodes I've done too is once you get radio and definitely once you get television, uh, all of a sudden the costs of campaigning go up dramatically because what used to be uh, what what used to be needed to run a campaign was you know to rent out an event hall or maybe decorate it or something like that and now it's gotten far more expensive um, there's there's a I'm gonna throw kind of a curveball at you um, or not a curveball but something that I, I I didn't think of originally uh, when we were planning this out which is, there's a there's a chart I love to cite, and I'll, I'll share it in the show notes online for this episode that shows the level of overlap in Congress. So people who voted, who or like Republicans who crossed the aisle to vote for a Democratic policy or a liberal policy and vice versa. And overlap's pretty high up until like around 1980, and then it just falls off a cliff, um, which also happens to be right around the time, uh, you know, 
campaign finance for, or that the era of campaign finance, modern campaign finance first started. Um, and I guess my, my question to you, it's kind of a chicken and egg question, but is it the, do you think it's the, the funding that caused the hyperpartisanship, or, or I should say the use of mass media that caused the hyperpartisanship, the, the funding uh, that was needed to fund to, to campaign on mass media or the regulations that hobbled the party? Do you, do you have a, do you get what I'm saying there? Or, yeah, or no? That's a huge question. And it's a, a puzzle that political scientists are still trying to untangle. Yeah. I think you hit on many of the key themes. I mean, one thing we start with is there's been a level of sorting in the electorate itself. People mm-hmm. going, but, but there's, Many of us think it's also elite driven. The people who come into politics have a different set of incentives, a different desire to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said in the past, being a loyal party member, you work your way, you're an apprentice, you work your way up the ladder, uh, and you don't stray too far from party principles. And most importantly, you are uh, dedicated to your local constituency, not national constituencies mm-hmm. that have an issue-based focus. So you're more concerned about bringing money to fix that senior citizens hall than you are about issues involving um, abortion or guns or something like that. Yeah. So that's changed quite a bit right there. Yeah. Uh, well, my, my favorite example I love to cite is campaigns in Maine or, you know, politicians in Maine campaigning about security at the border with Mexico. It's like you couldn't <laughs> possibly be further from there. But, you know, sure, it must be a priority to the folks in Maine. Um, so specifically then on the issue of campaign finance, like what are some reforms you'd recommend to, to counter this effect? Well, as you know, you know, I, I'd like political parties to control more money. And, uh, you know, a couple of reasons for that is they do tend to look for candidates who are fit their constituencies better. It raises the odds of winning. Mm -hmm. So they're not going to be, you know, interest groups, they, they, throw a lot of chits in there. Let's say we might not win this race, but if we do, gosh, we get person who's totally loyal to us. Whereas parties, let's play the probabilities. We don't care what they stand for. Let's get them elected. Now, some people don't like that, mm-hmm. but it ups the odds of getting more moderate candidates. And the other thing is parties are more transparent and accountable. We know what they stand for. Some of these groups, Club for Growth, who are they? Americans don't know who Club for, they know who the Republican Party is and they can punish them. So yeah. there's accountability and transparency there. So that's, those are two very basic factors for why I would like to see more money go to the parties who are the coalition builders rather than the fragmenters. Yeah. Yeah. And so would you say then maybe remove the caps, for example, on contributions or remove some of the restrictions around spending? Is that, is that what you think would work or is there other stuff that's maybe a little more targeted? I think those would be main over main things I would recommend. Let people give uh, higher contribution limits to parties, I'd even consider taking them off. Some countries don't even have contribution limits to parties yeah. like Sweden. I would consider that. Although one thing it does, it protects the uh, donors from shaking down. I mean, it protects, uh, yeah, donors from being shaken down by parties to give unlimited amounts. At least you could say, I could only give this amount. Yeah. But I would make those very high. Every civic organization, and parties are civic organizations, needs patrons. They can't just rely on, 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 on small donations. So I would take those up and I'd let the parties uh, invest in their candidates, invest in mobilizing as much as possible. Don't put restrictions on how much they can give their candidates. Let them make those decisions. That would, that would go a long way. A few yeah. other things, because what this would do, it would downplay the direct impact of individual ideological donors 
on vetting candidates, choosing who they give money to. It would in, reduce the impact of uh, these wealthy outside groups spending money in uh, elections to support their favorite candidate. Um, so I want to diminish the impact of these uh, groups that currently dominate the system. Now, one controversial thing that your viewers might wince at is, um, you know, in the 1980s, the big uh, bet noir was uh, PACs, business PACs. Yeah. And, um, and so reformers wanted to squeeze them out with the mccain follower reform, so they didn't allow them to give any more. They didn't adjust for inflation for business PACs giving money. And I think that was a mistake uh, because even by uh, the point that McCain got Feingold was passed, it was very little that business PACs can give to candidates. And um, business PACs tend to give, not for ideological reasons, they just want to make friends. And mm -hmm. to some of you, it might sound pernicious. Yeah. But, um, but in fact, you know, Congress works better when people are not fighting uh, to get the money of ideologues. And um, so I would, I would say that they should raise the amounts that PACs, traditional PACs, can give to candidates because they have a more moderating effect than what's coming from individual wealthy donors. I hope you're enjoying this episode, and I wanted to take a short break to share ways you can learn more about the electoral reform movement that is gaining steam in this country if the uptick in listeners to YDHTY is any indication. Now, first, as I've mentioned before, over the past few months, I've been working with an organization called Rank the Vote, and their goal is to bring ranked choice voting to every state in the union. And while there are so many ways we can reform government, ranked choice voting remains, in my opinion, the least drastic, most feasible, and most effective way to get the kind of diversity in American politics we need. And if you'd like to help, you can visit rankthevote.us to learn more. Second, I want to hear from you. So let me know what you think of this episode or others you've listened to, or just give me suggestions on topics and guests by visiting ydhty.com or hitting me up on social media. Twitter seems the place you like to talk, so feel free to grab me there. And to the folks I've chatted with before, you've been a huge help in the growth of the show. Thank you very much for all of your comments and suggestions, and I'd love to get more people in the conversation. Let us get back to the episode. Yeah, and there, there's something too I'd want to I'd want to highlight for the folks watching and the folks listening, which is, you know, again, you may have heard the whole concept of letting businesses contribute more and shook your head at that. But there's a, there's a couple of things I'd keep in mind, rightly or wrongly, the one thing the business community tends to like is stability. And, uh, and generally, they also have a brand name that can be affected if, they if somebody veers too far, policy veers too far. Um, the, the second thing I'd, I, I, I bring up as well is, is, and, and I think getting back to something you said is they're transparent. So there's, there's at least some, there's at least some level of transparency as far as who's contributing. Um, whereas right now we have this situation where there are a lot of theoretical, very wealthy, who knows, but anonymous donors, Funding, like you said, Club for Growth, funding Citizens United, funding all these other super PACs that just have no 
uh, accountability at all. Yeah. Uh, my and, point, actually, to yeah. add to that, I think one of my concerns is business packs are staying in their traditional lanes, business groups. But I, my fear is that uh, when they see that these other organizations are giving to these so-called dark money groups, that mm-hmm. they might start going in that direction. And then we won't know about corporations giving money. We want to channel them into roots of transparency and accountability because businesses are basically risk averse. But if you take away that transparency uh, and you institutionalize it, then they might be spending uh, a lot of money in ways that aren't necessarily healthy for the political system. Yeah. Yeah. No, the kind of the one thing I see in all this is if I'm kind of gaming this out going forward, it seems like you could almost create this tug of war where you have these very wealthy ideologues funding their own candidates, their own more polarizing candidates in competition with the more moderate candidates being pushed by the party apparatus. Do you, could you see that happening or, or do you feel that's maybe it a is little, happening. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yes, and it actually is happening. I mean, you know, Mitch McConnell has said I'm getting involved in primary elections because he's afraid of, um, you know, certain supporters picking candidates who are not going to do well. Yeah. He, you know, the incentive for party leaders is let's control government. Mm-hmm. And that has an inherently moderating push to it. Yeah. Um, so, so that battle, I expect to see more of that. It hasn't happened as much in the Democratic Party, but believe me, Nancy Pelosi tries to edge out candidates, push away candidates or her, her, her secondary leadership, mm-hmm. discourage people from entering races that might hurt the party control Congress. Yeah. And, you know, obviously activists don't like that who support these candidates. But that is part of what the party does in building coalitions and trying to win control of government. And I would argue that, you know, giving them the resources to really, you know, make some of those claims would be good for our political system. You know, what I'm loving about this conversation is you've taken two groups that people love to hate which is the party apparatus and the business community, it actually elevated them above the real source of the problem, which again, are these, are, are these uh, single issue groups and these uh, ultra wealthy donors. Um, to kind of flip that on its head, there was another question I, I wanted to ask you, which is if you look at like the Senate runoff in Georgia, uh, you had a situation where there was a lot of money coming from out of state and uh, a lot of that money were just smaller dollar contributions, just people from all over the country who wanted their team to take control of the Senate. And so they were donating 10 bucks, 20 bucks or whatnot. Do you think there's a potential again, where you have competition between the party apparatus, you have competition between the ultra wealthy. Do you see your average everyday hyperpartisan American voter being, you know, the, their ability to aggregate funds together via the internet. Do you see that becoming a force or, or not so much? Well, small donors are, there are more small donors in the system. They don't actually carve out as much of a role because of super PACs now playing such a big role. Yeah. But they are important, especially in races, as you mentioned, special elections. They're very important in these high profile races, which yeah. attract national attention and they send money there. And I do actually envision, um, some tension between small donors and what, you know, the, the interests of the party. Yeah. Uh, because once again, small donors are not, a, they are different from your average voter. They uh, are more like um, 
uh, dare I say, they're more like people like you and me who uh, really follow certain issues, uh, mm -hmm. are, are, are active in politics. They tend to be as extreme, if not more so, than large donors. Yeah. So you're not, you're not actually creating more either moderation or more uh, uh, robust distribution of preferences of people. So to say that small donors are your average American, they are not. They yeah. tend to be much more wealthy, educated, and they care about certain issues. And I think it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not uh, accurate to say they're really the average American um, when in fact um, those people already have tremendous influence because they're the same people who volunteer. There's this participation gap between one set of Americans and the rest of us. And that's mm -hmm. the, these Americans are doing everything and the parties are paying attention to them because they're doing everything. Yeah. So uh, that's a big concern. Yeah, it's it's it, the it, as you were talking, like the only thing I could think about was the run up of GameStop stock, where you had this mob of people with extra money who just drove up the price, and we almost like are in are, are, are in a lot of ways maybe have GameStop politics, where if there's some really hot race or some real uh, attractive personality, everyone just kind of goes to that side of the room. Um, Good analogy. Yeah. Now I, I know you mentioned. Uh, Campaign finance was part of it, but not all of it. Outside of reforming the finance system, giving the parties more power, what are some other reforms that you feel are, are high up on the list? Um, so one one reform, again, I'm concerned about um, you know the gatekeeping power of parties. I think primaries have to be reconsidered. We're not going to get rid of primaries. I mean, some of you know the way I'm talking sounds like I'm the professor of bad government. Yeah. But one, well, you know, because I'm I'm challenging some some very progressive, good government nostrums. But I'm I'm loving it. I'm hearing all of it. So yeah. But I do think the parties they can't be just free for alls. I think the parties have a role to play again, the way they used to. Not I actually say not the way they used to. Yeah. Um, they're not going to be smoke filled rooms. Even they won't even be vape filled rooms. They're going to yeah. be places where um, that the voters ultimately decide. But you need some bit of um, vetting. So for instance, the party leaders, local, state, should be able to say, um, you know, this candidate came out of nowhere, never never been participating in party affairs, hasn't run for office before, no experience. We don't think they should be on the ballot. And uh, there could be certain rules about how they get about. Now that could obviously lead to some, um, you know, you, you might not get people like Barack Obama running for office in Chicago if the parties were given that much power, yeah. Although he was active in politics to some extent, so yeah. I, he I, he wouldn't be somebody I would disqualify. Yeah. He was of the community and he was very much involved. Um, but I would give him some of that role. But I'd also add to that when the voters vote, this might be something that you, uh, I, in our previous discussions, I, I understand you admire. This is ranked choice voting. Yeah, the primary, and um, your listeners probably know about this, and that's to allow uh, voters to rank their preferences. And um, what usually what happens today is if there's a big field, 10, 15 candidates, somebody 20% of the vote could win, who's mm -hmm. not even well liked by other members of the party. And that wouldn't necessarily happen with ranked choice voting, you'd get the second choice, perhaps that's more fulfilling to the rest of the party. And that's the role that party leaders used to play It's like, well, this person looks like a star, but doesn't satisfy this faction or that faction. Here's somebody 
who might seem more like milk toast to you, but actually everybody kind of thinks they're good. Yeah. I, I think, you know, something I've never verbalized on this show, but but was kind of brought to mind as you were talking is if you if you look at the role of an election, it's really to send a signal to government about popular opinion. And the system for sending that signal, as as you mentioned earlier on, was the political party, where the parties, uh, the party's interest in ultimately maintaining the goodwill of their constituents and getting more candidates elected. And um, the the signal, as you said, seems to be broken now by the fact you can have these candidates that win with a minority of the vote. And the one who comes to mind right out of the right out of the gate is uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who eight person primary, uh, not a, a hyper partisan district. It was red, but it's also you know it's Fulton County. It's not it's not crazy to the right. Um, and again, eight candidates. She won with forty percent of the vote. And any of those other moderates were indiscernible from her. So your choice was, you know, your run-of-the-mill Republican or QAnon. And uh, and 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 I think certainly, you know, I've I've always been a big advocate on this podcast of ranked choice voting. And I think, you know, certainly that'd be a way to allow <laughs> the kooks, you know, let's just call them what they are, but you know, allow the kooks to get in and have their say and not have a party apparatus that appears to be quashing these folks. Cause I think that could create some blowback as well. Right. Yeah. I agree. I yeah. Um, one last question for you. Um, if I'm just your regular run of the mill voter, which I am, um, and I want to take action, I'm concerned about campaign finance and I want to do something to uh, affect it or to have a positive impact where I live. Are, are there are there ways I can take action? Yeah, I think there are a few things you can do. Um, it's a complicated it's a complicated business because um, obviously you're you're piercing at the interests of politicians, but you're also dealing with unintended consequences because I think all reforms have some consequences we don't expect. Yeah, but I do. I didn't mention this, but I do think public financing can play a, an important role here. Not necessarily the type of public financing that's being pushed in, for instance, HR1, this bill that's coming out of Congress right now. Yeah. Um, because what HR1 does is they're going to match contributions of a small donor. Mm -hmm. There's something to be said for that. Yeah, you want, you want uh, people who are less wealthy, and they are less wealthy, too. But again, they're the same types of people. They're not you know, your average voter really participating. So I would prefer, um, instead of focusing on the individual donor, I would prefer if you gave a grants to the party, public subsidy grants to not just the Democratic Republic Party, give it to the Green Party, whoever has registered voters, um, and they could decide what to do with it. Or you can give grants to uh, the candidates. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, because right now the current system is going to reinforce polarization. And if you give public grants, you should have, just like Madison argued about pluralism in our the way we structure our government, we should have pluralism in how we get money. Mm -hmm. You know, have some from an ind individual donors, some organizational donors like PACs, parties, and some public subsidies. Mix it in so there's no one's kind of you know obligated to one set of constituencies. And that's kind of how I think about campaign finance. And don't don't put spending caps uh, on these things because you know think in terms of building canals, not mm -hmm. dams. 
all right? Canal's not dams because you want to have the tributaries of money go to transparent, accountable groups. And I think there happen to be parties. You might prefer candidates. Have them to go to those groups and, um, and have politicians be able to have enough money to have a voice, okay? To be able to get their message out. By the way, I didn't mention parties fund challengers more than any other institutions, okay? So that's another reason why you would want parties to control a lot of money, because again, they want to win uh, things. So when you think about reform, try to think it out of the conventional sense mm -hmm. of um, let's just stop the flow of money, mm -hmm. let's just make sure it's uh, really low contributions, because that's just a recipe for outside dark money spending. Yeah. I, the hydraulics of politics, of money, is going to go somewhere else. So try to move away from that conceptual understanding of it. You can find links to some of Ray's research in the show notes. So swing by ydhty.com and click on episodes in the upper right-hand corner to learn more. And if you like this episode, please consider sharing it with friends and loved ones and leave a kind review. And also, if you haven't subscribed already, there is no time like the present. Just gently press on that subscribe button. Gentle. This isn't a hockey game. Now, the big takeaway from this episode is this. Our campaign finance system is a problem, but not the problem. Extreme political ideologies are only useful in a system where you can win office with a minority of the popular vote. And if we fix that... We can do more to improve the quality of the people elected to office than, in my opinion, any other reform could. Now, the second is that we tend to focus on the corrupting influence of machine politics, but we neglect to acknowledge the moderating effect they have on candidates. And parties want people who appeal to a wider swath of voters, and they're typically not the candidates you hear about. Now, Regardless of what electoral reforms take place over the next decade, it shows the role of political parties is essential to any well-functioning political system. <laughs> Funny I say that. As always, music, courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's editorial advisor is Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in North Carolina, United States by the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Daniel J. Sally. Adios.